This is Mike Dilk of Relax Back UK. This is UK Health Radio and welcome to the Relax Back UK show with me, Mike Dilk. This week, I talked to someone that a lot of us will remember, frankly, as a bit of a hero. The more risk of injury or death, then the more I concentrate, um, you know, and the more I focus. So to make sure I get it right. Who remembers Eddie the Eagle? I chat with him about his story, how to focus and succeed in, in practically anything, really, but certainly in ski jumping and also to reduce the chance of injury in any sport. But again, certainly in skiing and ski jumping. Here's another topic. There's more than 40% of the workforce now is over 50, and that's going up and up and up. If you are responsible for ensuring that you have enough good staff to run your business, or you want to ensure that your staff are all taken care of, then you need to listen to Christine Cripsley of System Concepts. Daddy. I met Eddie the Eagle of all places at a health and safety conference. Surely ski jumping and health and safety really do have just nothing in common. But actually, they kind of do. If you listen, you'll, you'll find out. Eddie the Eagle, I think, is in everyone's psyche. He's just kind of lodged in their mind somewhere if they're 40 or over. And I was uh, lucky enough to, to chat to him. Now, I've got to say, I enjoy all the interviews I do, but I have to say, Eddie really was a delight to chat to. He was just really interesting, absolutely fascinating. And the first question I asked him was, when was the Olympic Games where you came to everybody's attention? Uh, Calgary Olympics, 1988. So we're looking 30, over 31 years ago. So it's been a long time now. That, that, that is a while, but I, I can still remember watching you on the news. Uh, doing that. So can you give us just a, 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 a potted kind of story? You did the 90 metre jump and of course the film's just come out a couple of months ago. I watched the film. In the story of the film, you hadn't done 90 metres jump, a, a 90 metre jump before you did it at the Olympics. Is that actually right? Uh, well, it, it, it wasn't strictly true, but I'd only done about five jumps off the 120 meter ski jump. It was called the 90 meter 31 years ago. Now it's just been renamed the 120 meter. So I'd only done about five jumps, whereas everybody else that was jumping there had done probably close to 30,000 jumps. So, um, <laughs> you know, me with my five and then with their 30,000, of course, it, it, I was very, very much a beginner. So that's why they pretended it was my very first. When in actual fact, I mean, in, in a sense, it was. Um, but uh, it was in a true sense. I'd only done about five. So uh, I was still very, very nervous. So all the other competitors, like people that do ski jumping in the Olympics, generally start when they're children, don't they? Yes. Yeah, they start about four or five years old, generally, uh, the, the jumpers, because um, by the time you're eight or nine, you start understanding fear, um, and then it's probably too late. So uh, if you can master the technique and get up to a certain level of jumping before sort of eight or nine, um, you, you'll make it most of the way there, because you, 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 uh, you, you've already done it before you get too scared. Right. And what age were you when you started? 22. <laughs> okay, so the idea of fear had well and truly kicked in. 
Oh yes, absolutely. Which is why when I started ski jumping, most trainers kept telling me that, you know, I won't go past a 40 meter because it would be too scary. I won't jump further than 50 meters because it would be too scary. Um, all that kind of thing. Whereas, uh, you know, all the way, but that was just like a red rag to a bull. Whenever told, whenever somebody told me that I couldn't do it, um, you know, that just inspired me to prove them wrong. So um, uh, I was quite used to people telling me that I couldn't do something, uh, and then I proved that I could. And uh, so it was quite quite a nice way of doing it, really. Reverse psychology, I guess. So does this idea of being able to conquer fear? I, I can imagine it's not that you don't feel it, or maybe you don't feel it. Or well, well, what is it? Do you not feel fear, or can you just conquer? Oh it? no, no! I, I get scared just like everybody else. It's just that <laughs> I can, I can, you know, use that fear in a different way and um, deal with it in a different way. And the, I, I, I always find that the more, the more risk of injury or death, then the more I concentrate, um, you know, and the more I focus. So to make sure I get it right. So. Um, that's that's what I deal with really I've never been too scared that I wouldn't do it but I've certainly been scared enough to make me really focus and concentrate and know exactly what I'm doing know um, you know focus on my balance on my technique um, and all that kind of thing and of course I do things to help minimize the um, the, the threat of injury or death right of course so this is this the idea of focusing that's that's what it does the fear focuses your mind yes Absolutely. Right. Yes. That's, that's like a good soundbite to take away. <laughs> yeah. But before that, it's not like you went straight into it. You, you were a pretty darn good skier before that, weren't you? Yes. Yeah. I, I started skiing when I was 13, which is still quite late in, uh, in skiing terms, but I, I got very good very quickly. Um, got uh, raced internationally, got my international race license to race for Britain at Slalom, GS, Super G, that kind of thing. Um, went to America to race, ran out of money, saw the ski jumps. It was cheaper to ski jump than it was to ski race. So I, I, it was an economic decision. And I, I started on the very, very small jumps. And then I, as I say, I worked my way up to the big ones. Uh, but it wasn't until I got to the bigger ones when, uh, you know, you really, really then had to start focusing. Um, and that's in a nutshell how I, how I did it, really. Just like the movie, uh, just like the movie demonstrated. It was a great movie. I've got to say, I really enjoyed the movie. Yeah, they did a great job. I uh, I loved it. I, I it still makes brings a tear to my eye when I watch the film. So they did a great job. Yeah, and I and I think it's been a success as well. It's been a box office success, I'm sure. Yeah, yeah, it's done very very well. Apparently, yeah, I'm looking forward to getting some royalties, but uh, I'm not holding my breath. <laughs> <laughs> All right, well, good luck with that. So Thank back, you. Back back to the skiing, the, the skiing and the ski jumping at top level, which is obviously where you were, and you win. You were in the Olympics. It doesn't get much any greater than that as far as the le level of the sport do athletes at that level of performance get injured a lot because i mean it's a dangerous sport um it's uh yes i guess they do especially winter sports because there's a much higher risk of injury than there probably is um, doing athletics, um, I, I assume, although I have seen people, you know, where their tendons have just snapped because uh, as they're sprinting along the road or, or sprinting along the racetrack. So, um, you know, they, 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 there is always the threat of injury, um, but probably more so because of impact, you know, when you fall over or when you crash, um, you know, you, you've got to you've got to maintain a certain level of fitness. Um, to try and lessen the chance of, uh, of injuring stuff. But I, I don't think I know an international racer who hasn't at some stage, you know, had very serious injuries, but they've overcome them and, and, and carried on. Right. Do, so 
for, for skiing and ski jumping athletes, are there any sort of training regimes or things that they concentrate on in their training to reduce the chances of getting injured? You know, do they do more strength training, more agility training, or, you know, what do they, what do, they do to try and avoid getting cropped? I, I think just training in general helps you to prevent injury. Um, and that is everything strength training especially um, flexibility Um, that is a a major factor in um, you know lessening the chance of injuries Um, you know pulled muscles and uh, ruptured tendons and that kind of thing by 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 using plenty of flexibility that can help reduce Um, and 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 yeah any any kind of uh, training at all physical training and technique training helps and even um what what i used to use a a technique when i was doing my slalom and especially my ski jumping visualization techniques um that helped a lot not only with the fear but with um you know uh, overcoming that fear because i would imagine myself you know moving putting my skis on moving across the jump at the bar sitting there getting ready to go and i would see and feel everything that i would normally see and feel as i was going down a jump and then um, you know actually do the jump in my head and cut constantly visualize what it would feel like um so that if i had a break for a month when i went back it was like i'd never been away because i visualized it constantly in my mind and that helps us also to um you know prevent injury gosh so when you were doing this visualization did it kind of affect you physically as well? Because I, I can imagine at the moment you take off on a ski jump, you know, your heart rate goes ballistic. Did you get the same sort yes. of effect? Oh, yes, absolutely. Um, it's, uh, yeah, it's like uh, like anything else, I suppose. You know, if, um, you, know, if, if you see a, a bloke sees a pretty woman walking along the street, you know, the heart rate goes and uh, it starts to get higher. Um, and it's exactly the same when I visualise ski jumping, you know, or doing my slalom. Um, I would see and feel everything that I would normally feel. And if I'm in that start gate getting ready to go or sitting on the bar getting ready to jump, um, the same feelings of uh, adrenaline, um, heart pumping, um, you know, I, I would feel that. Um, and then I would try and calm it right down so that when I do actually sit there for real, um, I, I've calmed myself down. So it lessens the, um, you know, the, the heart rate and all that kind of thing and helps me to concentrate. And so visualization helps physically and, and mentally as well. Yeah, that is amazing. I mean, that shows the power of the mind, doesn't it? Oh, absolutely. I, I, I think people just really misunderstand the power uh, that you have in your mind um, and how you can overcome you know great things um, even even preventing illness you know people think themselves ill and I think you can think yourself well as well so um, uh, I think the mind is uh, very misunderstood and, and people don't understand the power of the mind very yeah very interesting I got one question for you actually again it's, a, it's about an exercise and it's it's from the film in the film there's um, you are well. You, the, the actor playing you is balancing on a rope, and yeah, so tightrope walking. Really, did yes? Did you actually do that? Yes. Yeah. Um, it was either sometimes it was a rope and sometimes it was elastic, um, and you would balance on those elastic and because with ski jumping it's it's where you are positioned on your skis and your position your body balance um and and that is the is the is the most important thing really 
um, because you can't jump forwards unless you're balanced correctly to be able to go forwards. So, and, and you've got to maintain that balance, you know, when the G-forces are, are slamming into you, pushing you back, pushing you down, but you've got to maintain um, a very, very good balance. So by doing those kind of things like balancing on logs and uh, balancing on elastic, um, that kind of thing, it really helps you to, um, uh, you know, uh, really dig deep into that balance and where your balance is on your feet uh, uh, and the balls of your toes and you're and all that completely kind of aware of your body like you know where every bit of your body is in space uh, absolutely and you're really in with your balance yeah and so having been at this extremely high level you know doing this 30 years ago has it has this stayed with you presumably you, you oh yes you can yeah, it, it, could you still walk a tightrope even yeah, um, I still I still enjoy doing balance techniques um, and working on that. You know, it, for, for for all kinds of things. Even if I'm just doing you know any sport at all, and also I, I mean I dance a lot now. So when I go dancing, I'll get there half an hour beforehand and I'll do uh, 25 minutes of stretching. Um, now a lot of people sort of when I when I'm stretching before I go dancing, they say, oh, you know, what are you doing that for? And I say, well, it's to prevent injury. And and so many of my dance friends you know, have got injured because, um, you know, they haven't stretched before they go dancing. They just turn up and start dancing. And, um, you know, it only takes a lady you're dancing with to be a little bit too um, strong or aggressive with her with her hold. Um, and before you know it, you've pulled a muscle in your neck or your back and, and then you're out of action. Whereas, you know, by doing lots of um, flexibility work, um, I've never, ever been injured, you know, doing my dancing and things like that. So I, I always use my techniques with, um, you know, flexibility and balance and visualization as well. When I'm doing dancing, um, I visualize certain moves um, so that I can remember them. What sort of dancing do you do, Eddie? I do jive, so it's quite a. It can be quite fast, but there's a there's a silk version which is a slower. Um, I enjoy doing that as well. So um, it's good for it's good for. I mean that that's how I keep fit um, because it's very good for the body and the mind because the man has got to lead, and so I've got to constantly think two or three moves ahead. So it's it's a very good brain exercise as well as body exercise, um, which is what I like so much about dancing, really. And do you do that competitively as well? No, no, no. I only do it for fun. Okay, brilliant. Okay, that learned something new new about you. Back, so just back to the skiing and and possibly the ski jumping. Or that might be this question might be less appropriate for ski jumping. For the rest of us, for Joe Joe Public, if we're going on our skiing holiday for the weeks before, you know, what should we do to try and lessen the chance of us crocking ourselves on the slopes? Um. I think the most important thing is to get as fit as you possibly can, because the fitter you are, the the better you ski and the more you'll enjoy it as well. Um, and, and that's everything. That's flexibility, doing lots of stretches, um, things like wall squats. So you sit uh, uh, with your back against the wall and then you lower your, your uh, legs until your thighs are parallel with the floor. And then you try and hold it for as long as possible. Lots of walking, running if you can, um, or cycling. You know, anything that will really start to tighten up those muscles, especially around the knees um, and lower back. Um, and uh, you know, just just get as fit as you can over the sort of week or month before you go skiing. And then, um, I mean, there's nothing quite like skiing to get ski fit. I mean, we, no matter how much training I do, when I get out there for a week skiing, I'm always not very ski fit. But I try and you know 
physical fitness helps to a certain degree, but the best way to be ski fit is to actually ski. Um, but it does take a while, and, and most people only go away for one week a year, whereas you know, sometimes I go away for five or six weeks, and it's, it's not until I get to the fifth or sixth week when I really feel fit because I've been skiing for five or six weeks. Right, sure. Have you got any old injuries that kind of crop up from, well, in, in the film, and I'm, I'm sure in real life, you had the odd tumble doing the ski jumping. A, a, any injuries that are still lurking from that? No, no. I'm very lucky because I've, I've broken my neck, my back. I've um, broken my arms and legs. And yet I do not suffer from any problems, you know, even when I broke my neck and back when I was 17. Um, but I think it's largely because I'm always active. I'm always doing something. So I'm always stretching to get ready to prepare for that particular exercise or that particular sport that I'm doing or dancing. Um, if I, I think if I'd have become a couch potato, I think it would have been a different story. And I might have been, might have started to suffer from some of my, um, you know, long-term, uh, you know, injuries from a long time ago. But um, so far, because I'm always active, um, I don't suffer any long-term damage. So keep moving. That's the message, isn't it? Absolutely. Yeah. Got to keep moving. Um, and, you know, that's anything, you know, you know, in an evening for an hour, go for a walk, go for a run, go for a jog, go for a cycle. Um, just do something. Um, you know, the more you sit down and do nothing, then the more the body starts to seize up. As you say, use it or lose it. Yeah. So, well, you mentioned that you still go skiing. You know, you might go skiing for five or six weeks a year. Do you still do the jumping? I still jump occasionally. I did some jumping in February this year, which was good fun. Uh, I mainly just do charity events nowadays. Um, if, if there's a charity event, I'll go along and help raise money for um, a different charity by doing some ski jumping. Um, I've still got my jumping skis. I've got my jumping kit, so I'm able to go off and do some. But I don't do much jumping, uh, and it does take me a little while. I mean, I can always, you know, if somebody asked me now to go off a 60-meter, I'd be able to go off and do it. Um, it wouldn't be a problem. Um, but to get good and to jump really well, that would take, you know, a couple of days or a couple of weeks training, whereas sometimes oh. I haven't got time. I've just got to go out there, do the jump and come straight back. So performance wise, it wouldn't be very good, but I can still jump off a, you know, a 60 meter after a couple of days, I'd better go off a 90 meter or 120 meter. It's, um, it's, uh, you know, I've, I've done, you know, quite a few thousand jumps over the years, 20,000 now. So um, I've got enough jumps behind me so that I can just go along and, and do most jumps. 20,000 jumps. That's fantastic. So actually, I've got a technical question for you. When you say a 90 meter jump or a 120 meter jump, what, what does that actually mean? What are you actually measuring? Um, it's, it's based on the critical point, what they call the K point. It's where the, the, the landing hill is at its steepest. And then at the critical point, it's where the ground then start or the landing hill starts to flatten out. So if you go beyond the critical point, the K point, it starts to get a little bit dangerous if you jump too far and land on the flat and then you'll break your legs and break your hip because you've got to land on a certain steepness to, to take out the impact of the landing. Um, so on a 90 meter, the critical point is at 90 meters and on a 120 meter, the critical point or the K point is at 120. But there are jumps where the ground starts to flatten out very, very slowly. So it's still possible to jump 150 meters, even though the jump is a 120 meter jump, you can still jump up to 150 meters on it. Um, if it's safe to do so. Right. Okay. So, so di different jumps in different locations are all different, are they? Yes, that's right. So each hill will have a hill record. Um, and then there is a world record, um, but there are only two jumps in the world that you can jump 
that far because the world record I think now is 254 and a half meters but there are only two hills in the world that you can jump that far um, so and it's only the top 30 in the world the best jumpers who actually do ski flying um, but uh, you won't see those in the Olympics it's just uh, it's just the regular 19 120 meter that you see at the Olympic Games all right what did you call it then ski flying ski flying yeah the the K point I think is at 200 or 250 meters um so yeah it's a long way you, God, you know, so how how fast are these guys going when they take off it must be phenomenal. Uh, they're probably doing around about 80 85 miles an hour god right yeah. <laughs> it takes your breath away doesn't it i mean it's That's just right. and if you and if you jump if you jump 250 meters you'll be in the air for about 10 seconds so it's literally flying you are free, free falling or flying so it's it's a it's a very very interesting sport to watch but um, yeah, it's. Uh, I'd love to have a go. Just, I'd love to train just to be able to go off a ski flying hill. Uh, you know, before I, um, you know, finish completely. But um, whether I will get chance to do that or not in the future, I don't know. But I'll, I'll keep fit just in case I will be given the chance to do it. That this, this, this is just fantastic. I mean, the the whole the whole story is wonderful, and it, it's it's inherently interesting. And uh, the fact that you're in everyone's psyche eddie from that that's that fantastic calgary winter olympics is just such a um a fantastic thing so thank you so much for chatting and sharing some of that with us if people are listening to this and i think eddie is such a a, a fantastic guy a great speaker and they want to engage you for i don't know a motivational talk or after dinner speaking or something like that how, how can they get a hold of you um, they can uh, get in touch with, uh, I've got a, a series of websites. They can get in touch via my email, um, eddietheagle5 at aol.com, or I've got a website, eddieedwards.com um, um, or eddietheagle.com, uh, that kind of thing. Um, you can uh, find me via a website, which will then come straight to one of my email addresses. And then, um, yeah, I'm happy to do, I do, I mean, most of my work now is doing speaking. I do motivational talks after dinner speaking that kind of thing and i show videos of the film and um uh, uh, crashes and all that kind of stuff um uh, so that's my main job now okay all right well look thank you so much for chatting uh, an absolute pleasure no worries that's back uk run by my daddy Christine Critchley of System Concepts and she's a health and safety expert. We spoke about some of the issues that go along with attracting and keeping slightly older staff. Staff are usually a company's most important asset so that you know this is important stuff and it also can be really quite hard to get right. I first asked Christine if the demographic was changing such that sensible employers really had to think very carefully about how to attract and keep older staff as well as the 20 somethings? I think so because uh, I think the latest statistics are that there are uh, an enormous amount of people, probably um, I think there's more than 40% of the workforce now is over 50 and that's going up and up and up. So I think to retain staff is probably a good idea. And presumably if you want to be competitive, you know, you need to have some staff to do the work. I think so, and to use people's experience and knowledge, uh, I think are very important. But the other thing that I think can help is that if you have someone who is happy to be a mentor as well as do the work, then they can be a very good influence 
in the workplace? Yeah, so maybe that's worth just talking about a little bit. Some of the reasons why it's useful to have older staff. I mean, the first thing I think of, well, actually, they know what they're doing. That helps, yeah, <laughs> quite often. Uh, I think that knowing what you're doing, I think sometimes also uh, in our particular business, um, looking after your clients is very important. I think sometimes um, the way that people look after clients nowadays, they tend to go in, do the job and leave, uh, which may work for some people, but a lot of people like to be looked after. And I think that uh, perhaps we feel we have more time when we're older to do things like that. I'm not quite sure why. But I think you do feel you've got more time to look after your client base. Well, certainly, thinking back to when I was in my 20s, um, I'm not sure how useful or efficient I was all the time. I'm, I, you know, I, a couple of times, I had to admit, I did go to work with a stonkaroony hangover and I wasn't much used to anyone. I think most people have done that. <laughs> I don't know. I think most people will do that. Uh, I think that, you know... But I think the work ethic, perhaps, uh, in, in older people sometimes is you will go to work no matter what you feel like and you will actually perform to your best. may not be the best you can do, but I think there is a, a work ethic sometimes. Yeah. Uh, I think sometimes you see the millennials don't have quite the work ethic that we all used to be. You know, you were never late for work and those sorts of things. Work is much more flexible now, so I think that makes life easier too. Well, certainly... As I'm get, I, I mean, I still drink, but I don't have hangovers in quite the same way. I don't want to give the impression I'm a drunk. <laughs> going on about this. I'm really not a drunk. But and, and the other thing, actually, I, I I've employed um, people to help me in my my business. Um, there are, there are quite a few. They call themselves coaches, don't they? Oh yes. And, yeah. And that, certainly, if I'm employing a coach, I want to employ someone who's a bit older. I don't, I, you know, I want to employ someone who's actually had a couple of businesses and they've either crashed or they've made money. They've been around the block a couple of times. I think that can be useful. There are two sides to that, though, because some people, uh, as you said, you like the experience and the expertise and they perhaps know what they're doing. The other side of that coin is sometimes people will look at you and think, oh gosh, I suppose we're going to get the, all the old ideas. I wonder if they've followed, you know, they've come up with any sort of new technology. Um, I mean, I think you can find sometimes people can be very patronising when they will look at you and say, do you know how this works, dear? And it will probably be a piece of equipment you've used for years, but because they think it's new. I think there are two sides to that coin very much. Yeah. So, well, that looks, that uh, sort of goes on to a little bit, if, is if you are the owner of a company or a manager and you want to attract some new staff or retain your older staff, uh, some do's and don'ts. So don't don't irritate people when you're asking them if they can use IT. Sounds like one that's out no, there. No, no, that, that's one. I think it's other things, you know. And I think it's often, it's done without thinking. I think an awful lot of people, particularly when you go into um, the, the, the sort of um, receptions of large companies or any company, sometimes I think the training that they give the reception staff and things like that, they look up and see somebody think that's older and think, and they do say, have you got an appointment? Well, go sit over there, dear. I mean, I must admit, anything drives me near mad as being called dear, but... Um, so that, I mean, um, that happens. Oh, it happens. Oh, it happens. It happens. And you get pointed very, um, very sort of um, sternly. That's the lift. Well, I personally hate lifts and will always walk the stairs. <laughs> but, um, you know, you get, you do, there's a certain amount of... Um, 
patronising uh, attitude. Yeah, I know I can imagine that. Um, so still on, on the uh, subject of employing, attracting older staff, keeping older staff, you mentioned that work hours are a bit more flexible now, certainly for, for millennials. Um, do, have you come across older people needing or wanting different work hours? And they might, you know, they might have grandchildren to look after. They might have spouses to look after in a different way. I suppose that is probably true. I haven't actually come across that because I think most of the most of us that sort of work, your time, I mean, particularly as we're consultants, your time is your client. So, you know, if I'm due there at seven in the morning, I get there at seven in the morning. Um, otherwise. I think some people I've talked to would prefer to go home sort of about four to avoid the rush hour and things. I don't think that most of the people that I know that are similar to myself in age have much problems with early mornings. I think it's more they'd quite like to go home at four o'clock to avoid the rush and, and perhaps to do, as you say, things that they've got to do at home. Sure, sure. Well, everyone hate, actually everyone hates the rush hour. Yeah, you know. yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Um, okay, what about um, social needs? Because actually a lot of people at work have social needs and that's often that's the reason for going to work. Oh, yeah. And having an inclusive workplace where everyone feels part of the gang is, is vital. Have you ever um, given advice or helped bosses providing that sort of environment? Yes, I think the thing that's most important there is making sure that there, there's a sort of team spirit um, now we all hot desk and that sort of thing. You don't sort of get people um, you gathering together always in the same place to sit. So I think sometimes having good breakout areas and encouraging people to go and do things together. And I, I mean, I work for a company that's a very friendly company, so we go drinking and things like that together. But I know that on site, sometimes I do see people slightly out on a limb and, and you do see perhaps age groups graduating together you see them sort of uh, slightly sort of separating right. um, you know on night and do you, do you see that with even a hot desking environment like the, the, the young is I think hot desking is is much better at, at actually encouraging people to talk and encouraging people to to move about which is essential yeah. um, I think the Funnily enough, though, I think the uh, advent of standing workstations, I think I know more people, uh, older people, who prefer standing than the young. Really? Yeah. Have you, uh, so, have you got any reasons why? How could that I don't know. I think it's, I think it's, it's a, a perception, in a way, of I come to work and I sit down, and a lot of the, the youngsters seem to have that, whereas... A lot of older people I know prefer to stand, not just because they've got a back complaint or something like that, but I think they prefer to stand. I mean, I certainly would prefer to stand than sit, but, um, you know, I think that... You want to be careful, I might try and sell you a sit-stand <laughs> desk, eh? I think we've got one. I haven't had it up yet. We take it down and put it up every now and then, but the thing is that I don't spend that much time in the office. But I, th I think there is a difference, uh, there's a perception, and I think in a lot of cases, um, younger people like to sit and get themselves organised. I think also because their, their posture and things like that, as you probably know from the other side of your, your job, is that they, the posture is appalling in, in a lot of people at work. 
um, and the young particularly are diabolical the way yeah. they sit quite frequently. Yeah, they are. And I think older people generally do sit better and have yeah. better posture. But that kind of leads on to another question. In If you are looking to employ some older, more experienced yeah. people, have you come across people asking about kind of the... Um, the, the, the physical layout of the workspace and the stuff that's provided. To, and, you know, I, older people don't really need anything much different, do they? No, seriously, I don't think they do. I mean, I have been asked sort of things like, we've got changes in floor level, is that going to be, make a difference? And I said, no, as long as it's marked for younger people, older people will notice it as well. I don't actually think you need to make any uh, concessions on furniture or anything right. like that. This is, of course, talking about office work generally. Office work, yeah. yes. Yeah. Uh, I mean, there are jobs, I think, that are past uh, certain ages. Having said that, the people at B&Q that still can lift and move things, I think it is often down to training. I don't think that people should be barred because of their age doing a manual job. Because um, after all, there are a lot of farmers and things that do very, very heavy jobs that are well over the 60 mark and going into their 70s. So I think that, no, I don't think people should be banned. The only consideration, I would think, for office work particularly was if, and it doesn't really matter what age somebody is, but if they have very poor eyesight, what you have to do for their, you know, their comfort and for them to be able to see the screen, if they're doing screen work and that sort of thing, that, I think, has to be taken into consideration whatever age anybody is. Right. So you're talking about lighting there. Yeah. Well, lighting and sometimes, you know, going to the RNIB to get specialist advice about whether you have a fisheye on front of the screen or something like that. Yeah. Right. That's to do with, but that's to do with sight. More anybody's sight, but I suppose it could be worse than older people. I'm not sure. Okay. Um, yeah, of course. So you also mentioned... Escalators, which is kind of obviously quite a, a physical thing. And you guys have done some work on escalators, well, and escalators are in some large offices. Yeah, this, this was actually um, it's, uh, from the University of Portsmouth and the Health and Safety Executive. And uh, it's the rail uh, regulator, and I think National Rail have been very interested in the use of escalators for people over 65. And... Um, we had uh, the, the chap doing the research here and managed to get quite a few friends, family and everybody else to be interviewed. The um, research seems to show that there are quite a lot of accidents for people over 65 on escalators and they are wanting to find out whether it's the design of the escalator or whether it's the way that people use them. And um, Any results yet? Well, no, the, I don't think, it's, I think it's the end of October that it will probably be coming out. Happy to let you know when I get anything. But one of the first things that, I mean, the only thing I said, um, and not being very large, I don't know why I feel, I think escalators are too narrow. Um, because people do want to run up and down them, mm -hmm. and people want to stand safely. But I, the amount of times, because we carry so much nowadays, that people get bashed. Um, and I've seen children, you know, nearly being sort of sent flying. Um, and I think that, I think they ought to be wider because they're not actually a metre wide. They're only about 750 wide. Okay. Um, but I don't suppose that anybody's going to change them now, <laughs> but they might do when they build new ones. They are putting different types into um, some of the shops. Boots in their flagship store, they've just opened a flagship store in Brompton Road in Knightsbridge, 
and they've got uh, an escalator that's very clearly and carefully marked. It's got very good edging on it and it goes not slowly, but it goes, oh, it's difficult to describe, it actually, it, it goes very smoothly, um, but you, you wouldn't have, I mean, I've watched people go up and down it just for interest's sake, and people seem to step on it with much more confidence than they do with the ones in the, in the sort of tube stations. Okay, and that's, and down, to, that's down to kind of the I layout think of the thing. it's down to the layout. Well, also, it's down to the lighting. Right, okay. Which is, is good. Mind you, we'd like an escalator in, in the Pentonville exit of King's Cross. <laughs> We've been here for a year and it worked for the first two weeks we were in this office. And I promise you that we do each do 72 stairs a day because the escalator's <laughs> broken. <laughs> okay. Well, perhaps I should come back in a couple of months to see if there's some more, more yeah. about this research, yeah. actually. Because it, it does, does sound good. Yeah. And also to see if your yeah. local escalator yeah, is uh, now working. I'm yeah. sure it works. <laughs> One thing that I'm, is, I think, quite important, when, when you have older staff, they are a fabulous resource. And uh, if you are employing older people and you want to employ older people, you're doing that for what they know. Um, how about getting the, that knowledge out of them into the rest of the rest of the staff? That seems like something that's vital to do. Have you ever been asked or given advice and helping with that kind of thing? I think so, because, I mean, there is a, a, a place called the Centre for Better Ageing. It's a, quite a good website, and they have um, uh, sort of five ideas for being um, an age-friendly employer. And one of their most important ones is to encourage older people to have go on training as well, not to assume that because somebody has done the job for a very long time mm -hmm. that they can't learn anything new. And I think that's very positive that you go on that and give proper feedback when you come back from that. I think that if, if the rest of the staff see somebody that's older that perhaps is a mentor going on training too, I think it gives a lot more confidence. And it, well, actually, it may well inspire the rest of the staff yeah, to do some training and yeah. question how they do things as, as well. Yeah, so, yeah, absolutely. very healthy. Yeah. So treat, treat all the staff the same. Yes, I think so. And make, make it, if you make it, um, you know, that. Also, when people ask quite frequently, do, do older people need special health and safety or special care? No, I think you've got to have a good employee assistance programme for everybody. So I think the health care that's provided and the wellbeing programmes should be very inclusive. What about, the, I mean, the reason why everyone goes to work, well, the reason why most people go to work, 99% of people go to work, is to get paid. Yes, now, definitely. <laughs> financial goals may well be different when people are slightly older. Um, they might not be wanting to progress their, progress their career enormously. They might be kind of happy where they are. Or, you know, the, the, just the whole reason they're there might be slightly different. Do you... I think it can be. I don't really know that it is. I think a lot of people um, perhaps didn't get as good pensions or as they thought they were going to get. Or, you know, you, you didn't have to pay into pension schemes. Um, you know, when I first started work, uh, you didn't have to pay into pension schemes. And my mum was in one's, you know, early 20s, 30s, good Lord, I'm never going to need a pension. You know, I think there's that side. I think there is the side that people work. Um, I think most people still work and, and want a good wage, for, without a doubt. I think most people would like a good salary. Now, whether that's because 
they like to go to the Caribbean for three months every year, or I think you all work for something, and I think the financial reward's important. What you use it for, I think, may be different in older people, because if you have already got your home and you don't need, you know, pay, maybe you've been lucky enough to pay your mortgage off, something like that, then what you work for perhaps is particular treats or mm -hmm. to treat family or to, you know, to go towards a very, very big family wedding or something like that. So if you're looking to employ older staff and get the benefits of their knowledge and experience, you're going to have to pay them just yes. as well as anyone else. Yes, I would say so, yeah. Good, I'm glad to hear that. <laughs> um, now, we've spoken about you know, various aspects of um, keeping an older workforce, employing an older workforce, and uh, you know, the reasons you might want to do that. Um, if someone's listening to this and you know, they want to get some advice uh, or, or some, you know, maybe some cult consultancy on what have you, and they'd like to contact you or your company, how can I do that? Oh, well, I'm easy to contact. Um, it's christine at system-concepts.com. Okay. And are there any go-to websites, government well, websites, etc.? There is the Centre for Better Ageing, uh, and if you just Google it, it'll come up, which run quite a lot of seminars. They have, it's a very good organisation, and they have very good speakers all around uh, the range of people from university and things like that and they do advise employers um, there's also the health and safety executive that are doing research on extending working life and again if you it, that's dr helen beers is heading that uh, those are the two best places and i think that there is an advice line in Manchester University. I'm not quite sure about that one at the moment, but they are they're they're doing something on aging. Okay, well perhaps I can find out, and I'll yep. put I'll put the number on my blog. Great, All right. that would be good. Christine, thank you very much indeed for chatting. Thank you. Thank you very much to both my guests this week, and they were Eddie the Eagle and Christine Critchley, health and safety expert from System Concepts, and of course. Thank you to you for listening. That was Mike Dilk of Relax Back UK. Thank you for listening and please join us again next time.